Hello, literary friends. This is the Nobody Reads Oh Wait Yes They Do podcast. Now, if you have been listening, one of my five listeners out there, to this podcast, you'll notice that there was a recording. Episode two was about Wilkie Collins's Women in White. In my lack of technological knowledge, I accidentally deleted that episode bit by bit. So today, I'm going to attempt to re-record bits and pieces of it and share my thoughts on the woman in white. But I'm also going to cover the Moonstone, which I also read shortly after completing that post. So you're in for a treat. We're going to talk about Wilkie Collins's two major famous novels, The Woman in White and The Moonstone. So stay tuned. So to get us started, I had to do a little bit of digging um, for my notes on The Woman in White because it had been a couple of years since I'd uh, read this book. But thankfully, I had most recently watched the 2018 uh television miniseries of it, which kind of sparked my memory to kind of look up the book and to do some rereading of it. So one of my favorite lines, which adds to the mystery of the woman in white is the, um, the words, the foreboding words of Laura to Mrs. Michelson, which we'll talk a little bit more about the characters in a few, but it goes, quote, do you believe in dreams? My dreams last night were dreams I've never had before. The terror of them is hanging over me still, end of quote. And that kind of is the tone of The Woman in White. I first read the book when I was a little bit younger, quite a bit younger. And there was a PBS Masterpiece edition of it. And since then, um, that was probably, I was really younger, in the 90s, there has been a novel adaptation, um into a musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber and yet another TV miniseries, which I already alluded to. Um, my journey back into the story, I ironically was uh, when I heard Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Woman in White Suite on the radio. And I had forgot, oh, totally forgot that he had done a musical, um, which has beautiful motifs to it and beautiful melodies. However, he completely rewrote the story. So let's dig a little bit deeper into the story of the woman in white. Um, one important thing to emphasize is that Wilkie Collins requested that on his own tombstone, the woman in white be listed. He is listed as author of the woman in white. So that says to me that he probably saw this book as his, his best novel, or at least his favorite novel. And you know, it's, it's quite a bit longer than some of the other books that I've read by him, including the Moonstone. Uh, the story of the woman in white refers to an enigmatic character could actually refer to two characters in the book. And this is where I'm going to get into some spoiler alerts. There are, there's the character of Laura and there's the character of Anne. And it turns out that these two people are half siblings unbeknownst to them. And one has lived a life of privilege, the other a life of terror and horror and abuse. And these two characters, in some ways, are very much interchangeable. And although they are the central characters of the book, their voices are not included amongst the 10 distinct voices 
that are used in this book. And another key piece is that the book is told by 10 different narrators. Not all of them are as honest or as forthcoming as they should be. All of them have their own desires and perspectives and things they may want to keep secret or things that they may want to share or put together. And super spoiler alert, at the end of the book, these narrations, this book is meant to be like a compilation of, of witness testimony to help restore the name of one of the main characters. So before I continue, um, we'll talk a little bit more about the characters themselves and what makes the woman in white so special. So to the modern reader, the woman in white might be quite frustrating because like I said before, the two main characters of the book, Laura Fairley and Anne Catherick, have no voices. Instead, their stories are told through the eyes of other people, including um, most notably Walter Hartwright, the love interest of Laura Fairley, and Laura's own half-sister, Marion Halcombe. And when you get through the book, you'll notice that Marion is so very different from her sister, Laura. Uh, Laura is apparently beautiful uh, and uh, an heiress and has everything going for her, whereas Marion is brilliant and smart. And one aspect that makes it difficult to read is that Marion is assigned very masculine uh, characteristics, whereas Laura is assigned these um, traditionally weaker female characteristics. And that is frustrating for a modern woman to read. But um, aside from that, I think this novel has a lot of value in it and is important to read. So we're going to get into some major book spoilers and some spoilers in terms of the difference between the movie adaptations and the book. So if you don't want those spoilers, stop listening. But if you do, keep on, keep on trucking with me. So let's start with those spoilers. So one of the main aspects of the novel that was intriguing to me and in, in rereading is again that voicelessness of Anne and Laura and how both characters are treated so very differently based upon their life circumstances but at the same time they are treated the same. Unfortunately both characters uh, deal with a lot of abuse from the men and even the narrators around them. They share this line that I mentioned before the do you believe in dreams line it appears earlier in the book in a letter of caution from Anne to Laura before her marriage to this character, Percival Glyde. And it also appears when Laura is trying to escape um, and see her sister to when she says it out loud to a nurse. And these are two of the instances that we actually hear their voices. And ironically, their voices same, share the exact same language of do you believe in dreams? Um, the line itself forebodes a level of evil, as do some of the names of the locations in the book. One location where the glide, surface of a glide lives is called Blackwater Park. Now, the park sounds like his home sounds like a place where bad things happen and where nightmares take place. And unfortunately, 
um, both Anne and Laura endure a great deal of abuse. And the movie and miniseries and musical versions go into graphically what these could be. Collins implies and uses innuendo instead in his descriptions, but you can get, uh, use your imagination, which is kind of sad. So the main plot line is that there's an identity switch. It is a case of identity theft on Laura and Anne. So the men in her life need Laura's money. So instead of killing her, they switch her with Anne, who is deathly ill, poor Anne, and wait till Anne dies. And then Anne has been grown up in an asylum and Anne, they place Laura in that asylum instead of Anne. So Laura then experiences abuse of her own. And of course she had abuse from her husband and from this evil character, Count Fosco. Now, just a quick note about Count Fosco. He is like one of the great villains of literature. He is just so evil, but so at the same time attractive and, um, and charismatic. And it's kind of scary. Like he could definitely be a cult leader. He mesmerizes people around him. So other piece post asylum ordeal, Laura's officially dead. They buried Anne in her grave and, um, unbeknownst to Laura and Anne, they share a connection, uh, through Laura's father who was both Anne and Laura's father, but Anne is illegitimate and Laura's not. Also, Laura's mother, Mrs. Fairley, was really nice to Anne as a child. So um, it's just really important to note that there is that relationship. And as when the reader first encounters Anne, this poor woman has, has, uh, is deathly ill and she is, is sickly. And that's from the maltreatment that she's experienced. There have been some people who have been kind to her, but others who have not. And from also in the book, there's suspected abuse for Laura from her husband. And this is really difficult to read. And it's, it's frustrating as a reader, um, to not hear Laura's voice. You only hear the voices of Walter and Marion who are acting from a sense of duty and responsibility. But when they're trying to help Laura, they don't see her as an active partner. They see her in a very childlike way. And that's kind of heartbreaking because they don't acknowledge her trauma and try to help her through that. They, um, instead kind of ignore her to kind of help her at the same time. So it's a very like complex piece as opposed to helping Laura get, get it back, get herself back. And it's also interesting to note that both Marion and Walter, even though Walter loves Laura, there is this relationship between him and Marion as well. And it's implied, but not explicitly stated. And I've noticed in the movie adaptations that has been something that came out was that Walter and Marion loved each other as opposed to Walter and Laura. So something key to talk about or look at there. Um, but that's about it in terms of the explicit plot. And we're going to talk a little bit about the movie adaptations and how they differ from the actual story. Another thing to note, um, when we get into the plot and 
the movie adaptations is that the book itself is fairly long. Um, the copy I have is over almost 700 pages. Again, that includes some appendices. So it's about, it's a little over 600 pages and it's very small print. And uh, it might just be easier to go see a musical or watch a miniseries or watch the, you know, two hour version, the Masterpiece Theater Edition. So we're going to get into some more plot spoilers and adaptations. So I would argue that the latest miniseries is more true to the book in spirit um, and more accurately followed the characters. Um, but I really actually appreciated the adaptation because it did give Laura more of a voice in the story. And I thought that was a nice little modern twist. If you do watch the new movie, um, just please note that there are some minor differences. They added a character, this um, solicitor or solicitor-esque person who was not anywhere in the book. So don't just watch that movie. If you're going to write a book report, you kind of have to read the book. Um, I also did appreciate in the new 2018 version just... Um, the spirit of how they handled Sir Percival's secret, which in this podcast, I'm not going to give away Sir Percival's secret. You're going to have to read the book. And the funny thing is the secret, when I first read it, I was like, well, that's it. But looking back, uh, when I reread it, I was like, oh, I understand why this secret is so important to Sir Percival. And the 2018 miniseries really captured that secret and explained that secret in a way that the other versions of this rewrote the secret because it wasn't um, dark enough. So I'm glad that it honored what Sir Percival's secret was. So just important there. So back in the day, there was this 1997 masterpiece version, which uber simplified the story. It was well acted and it's fun to watch if you have access to it. However, it didn't make sense because it gave Marion and Laura and Anne the same father. It doesn't make sense to give Marion the same father as Laura because then Marion herself would be have an inheritance versus Laura solely having an inheritance. One of the key cruxes of the book is that Marion is penniless because her father is different from Laura's father. And in this version, they also gave them the same last name for simplicity's sake. And it just, it didn't make any sense. However, it was fun to watch. Um, the other piece is Andrew Lloyd Webber's adaptation. Again, it has this beautiful, haunting, musical motif but the secret, the relationship between Percival and Anne was more horrific and darker. And it really was like deeply disturbing to hear what that secret was in the Andrew Lloyd Webber. I'm like, why would you change the plot and make it so heinous and graphic in its description? That was very frustrating for me. And... Yeah, so those are kind of some quick notes on the adaptations. The other key thing to note is if you are basing the movie and the book 
um, especially the 2018, they take the timelines a little bit different in terms of how long um, Laura and Percival Glide's uh, honeymoon is, their tour, like dates are different, timing is different, so don't base things off of that. Now, one final note about the woman in white is, um, I don't know, it's just, it's just a good book. It is dark, comparatively speaking. Um, it doesn't, there are not very many positive men in the book. Uh, Walter Hartwright is probably the most good, the men of men, um, in the book. But all the other men, including... Uh, Laura's uncle, Frederick Fairley, who's kind of a punk, are just awful. So it's just kind of interesting to see that this book was written by a man and he doesn't think that much of his fellow men. But if not, like in terms of all these men are very much abusers of Laura, her father, her uncle, um, her lawyer's ineffectual, her husband, Count Fosco. There are also some abusive women and Catholic's mother, Jane, really an accomplice in the crimes against her own daughter. Um, through it all, like Lauren Ann are that Victorian style woman portrayed as delicate and weak, but actually they're incredibly resilient. And I wish that that would have come through in the book a little bit more. So now we're going to change gears and talk about a completely different novel, The Moonstone, also by Wilkie Collins. So stay tuned. As promised, I'm going to talk a little bit about The Moonstone, which is arguably the first detective novel. And um, the novel setting is the 19th century and before. Um, it's the height of British colonialism. And it is, like I said, the first detective novel for many reasons. It does share the, um, the note of being told by narrators, very much like The Woman in White. However, it is a much lighter book than The Woman in White. So if you're looking for something more entertaining uh, in all different emotions, you're going to want to read the Moonstone as opposed to The Woman in White because it is distinctively more cheerful. That said, there's some problematic pieces of it, especially to us 21st century readers, because we know certain things are wrong. Um, in terms of it is very much a colonial novel and that it looks at other faiths, other traditions, especially the Hindu religion and the religion of uh, Islam in a disrespectful way. It also looks at certain aspects of Christianity in a disrespectful way, but nowhere near the level of disrespect towards these other faith traditions. The other piece is that um, folks from those traditions and from other countries are, are very much seen as the other. And the whole premise of the book starts with an, a murder and an act of theft by a British officer who is stealing a significant sacred object and then willing it to his niece, um, AKA the moonstone, which is really not nice. So, um, 
That said, like the book starts with a prologue from some family papers about the theft of the diamond. And then it flashes forward to 1848 with the narration of Gabriel Betteridge. And Gabriel Betteridge is the house steward for Lady Julia Verinder. And Julia Verinder's daughter, Rachel Verinder, is the main character of this book, which is kind of fun that it is another female heroine who is a main character. Now that said, um, the book revolves around the diamond, the moonstone, which is in itself a main character. Um, It does have some really dark moments to it. And it takes a little while to get started with. Um, Like Gabriel and his daughter Penelope are very much comical characters. And Gabriel, like the first part of the book, I remember it was so hard for me to get into because he kept talking about Robinson Crusoe and how for Gabriel, this is his go-to manual on life is Robinson Crusoe. And you're like, when are we going to get into the story? But as I said, like, Older novels are set up a little bit differently than modern novels. Um, there's some other main characters. Um, there's Colonel Herncastle, who originally stole the diamond and then bequeathed it to his niece, Rachel, on her birthday. There's Rachel's love interest, the Franklin Blake and Godfrey Abel White. And those two gentlemen are not what they seem. Um, There's this maid, Rosanna Spearman, and then there's this um, really do-gooder niece of Mrs. Verinder, Drusilla Clack, who is kind of another comical character, very judgy, judgmental. So again, I don't want to, I'm not going to spoil the Moonstone for you because it is a detective novel. Um, It is kind of fun because it, Everything isn't what it seems. There are movie adaptations. I've only seen the 1990s version, which was uh, fairly true to the book. It left out some key characters like Penelope, who's Gabriel's daughter. Um, And it downplayed certain things. I think it's just important to note that so much, if you're looking to understand the detective novel, you should read The Moonstone because so much of the modern detective novel is based upon it and um it's just it's a fun read minus the colonialist attitudes that are honestly blatantly racist um so yeah that's the moonstone um So I forgot one key point um, in that Wilkie Collins was a close friend of another famous British author, Charles Dickens. But unlike Dickens, all the characters in Wilkie Collins' books tend to have a purpose and a direct linkage to the plot, whereas I've noticed with Dickens... um, There are characters who, especially to the modern reader, seem superfluous or unnecessary. I'm currently reading Our Mutual Friend, and it's it's hard to follow because the character structure is so complex. Whereas um, with either The Woman in White or The Moonstone, you get a much easier read because the, 
their the characters directly impact the story um, regardless of what their role or position is so on that note um, there is also a book by Dickens that relates to the incident that sparked the woman in white I'd have to look up to see what exactly that book is Um, but it's interesting to note that the authors experienced something together that they then inspired them to write some famous works of art. So on that note, happy reading and happy spring almost. Mm -hmm.